Welcome to the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. Our theme question for this episode of the podcast deals with the connections between Sunday, the Christian day of worship, and the rest of the week. What does it mean to reconnect our worship with our work? This is a particularly interesting question in light of the ways that COVID has affected the way we gather for worship and the way we gather for work. To help us with this question, I've invited a guest co-host onto the podcast, Jeremy Perigo. And together we talk with Corey Wilson, who with co-author Matt Kamig has written a book for workers and worship leaders, putting these things back together. Thanks again for tuning in. My favorite television show of all time is The Office. Before moving to its own network, it regularly ranked as the most watched show on Netflix. And there are lots of ways to explain its broad appeal. But part of that appeal surely has to do with the setting. Unlike sitcoms set in a traditional home, like The Cosby Show, an urban apartment, like Friends, or a third space, like Cheers, The Office is set in the workplace. Though there are exceptions, most people have to, or have had to, do some sort of paid work, which means that most of us spend a large part of our lives with people who are neither friends nor family, at least not in the beginning. During one of the later seasons of The Office, we leave the workplace to visit a church, Jim and Pam's daughter is being baptized, and Michael Scott, the bumbling boss, invites the whole office under the misguided notion that he could be the godfather. You'll have to watch it for yourself. But for a show that usually takes place in a standard office building, the church setting felt ill-fitting to me. Unusual, like a whole different world that was largely irrelevant to the main plot lines. And perhaps this is a good metaphor for the relationship of Sunday worship and Monday work. Sometimes it feels like these are two completely different worlds. The hope, of course, is that what happens on Sunday would stay with us on Monday. But is this just wishful thinking? Or are there better ways that we could weave these two worlds together? If the relationship between work and worship wasn't already strained, the COVID pandemic has affected the experience of gathered worship and gathered work for just about everyone. People began worshiping and working remotely and experiencing the fatigue associated with trying to squeeze the sense of connection that we feel in person out of online spaces. But times of tension have a way both of revealing what was already true and accelerating our arrival at destinations where we were already heading. So perhaps one of the unforeseen gifts of this time is that it has forced us to evaluate our shared rhythms of life and to ask how all these disparate parts fit together. At its best, worship integrates life, showing us how and why everything we do the rest of the week matters. This week on the podcast, we have a conversation with Corey Wilson, who with co-author Matt Kamick has written a new book on work and worship. My co-host for this episode is Jeremy Perigo, who directs worship arts here at Dort University. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I want to welcome two friends to the In All Things podcast. For this episode of the podcast, we have a guest host, Dr. Jeremy Perigo. Jeremy serves as the Director of Campus Ministries and Worship Arts here at Dort University. And prior to arriving at Dort, he was the Head of Theology, Worship, and Music at London School of Theology, 
Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for hosting this episode with me. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, it's great to be here. Jeremy has a doctorate in worship studies, and so he is the ideal co-host uh, because our other <laughs> guest has just written a book on worship and work with Baker Academic. Uh, Corey Wilson holds PhDs from Fuller Seminary and the Free University in the Netherlands, and he is the Jake and Betsy Tills Associate Professor of Missiology and Missional Ministry at Calvin Theological Seminary, where he also directs the Institute for Global Church Planting and Renewal. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a privilege to be here with both of you. Corey and I go back a bit. When I was considering Fuller for my doctoral work, he was the person who was providentially assigned to host me. And I am pretty certain that without that meeting, I probably would not have gotten connected to the neo-Calvinist cohort, which is the group of scholars who've been so important to my vocation and my research. And I probably would not be here at Dort University. So those of you who are listening, you can thank Corey in part, at least, uh, for me being at Dort. And now we've come full circle, and it's a privilege for us uh, to ask you some questions about your book. So let me start with maybe an easy one, or maybe just a, an obvious question, Corey. I appreciate that the subtitle of your book is about reconnecting work and worship rather than simply connecting work and worship. And actually, when I sat down to brainstorm this episode, my original theme question was, how do we connect work and worship? And then I looked at the subtitle and said, that's actually not the best question, is it? Uh, how do we reconnect uh, these two things that naturally belong together that have been driven apart? So can you say more about that, about reconnecting? Uh, how have these two things become disconnected? Yeah, I mean, we could spend the whole time just on that one question. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very important. And one of the things that uh, when we talk about reconnecting is, as you implied, that work and worship were meant from the beginning to be unified and connected, a seamless whole. And we see this right away in the beginning of, of Genesis, um, that we are royal priests, you know, and that that when Adam and Eve were commissioned to bear God's image by creating culture that flourished, that allowed creation to flourish, humanity to flourish, they were at the same time, as Abraham Kuyper says, their garden work was, was temple work. That the, there's a sense in which the, the Garden of Eden was a temple, was the first temple, and that Adam and Eve operated as priests. So when they were plowing the ground, they were not only exerting royal power, you know, imaging God's royal image out in the world, but also priests offering up, lifting up the fruits of the soil to God as an act of worship. So humanity is basically um, worship. I mean, we are fundamentally worshipers and that our work is a fundamental component, not only of how we bear God's image, but also how we worship and in, in terms of creating, cultivating and lifting that up. So, you know, my two-year-old son, um, even though he's very young, he's building things with these magnet tiles and big Lego blocks. And when he builds them, he just, you know, he'll come out of the other room and go, see, see, see. And he wants me to come in there and see what he's done. You know, so my co-author, Matt Kamek, has older boys and his refrigerator is full of artwork and pictures. And when you, you know, it's basic and a basic impulse for humanity to lift up their work as an act of celebratory worship to someone else. And so in Genesis, we see that right away, even in Genesis 4, um, Cain and Abel lift up their work as offering, and there's no recorded commandment from God for them to do so. Mm. And John Golden Gay, the Old Testament scholar that I really appreciate a lot, says that 
that what Genesis is trying to do is give formfulness to this basic human impulse. And so, yeah, that that is that in the very beginning that work and worship were to be one seamless whole as we are royal priests acting over creation. And that from the fall onward, there's a disconnect of that. There's a, a an unraveling of that unity. And it manifests itself in a lot of different ways um, throughout time and history and even up to the present. As Yeah, Corey, a beautiful picture, like you, you have giving us of kind of what it looked like from the very beginning. As, as we think about the, the diversity of worship today and practices, and your, your whole book is about reconnecting, what, what theologies have fueled this divide where in, in many ways worship can be escapism from work? Yeah, what? what's led us here? What in our thinking or practice of worship, thinking about worship or practice has led us to this place where there is a divide? You know, I think there are some explicit theologies. And then what you just mentioned, Jeremy, though, are the practices. I find that, you know, we have an espoused theology, right? And then we have the, like the lived, you know, lived theology. And I think, you know, on this issue, um, I mean, we can look at Gnosticism, Docetism, not only in, you know, first century, but how it's pulled through and it manifested itself over the centuries in different ways that privileges the spiritual over the material, the, the heavenly over the earthly. And so I think there's something to that, to actually look at the theologies. But how, I actually, in our book, we're really looking at the practices because we come, you know, we're working out of the out of a re- explicit Reformed tradition. And even though we have this wonderful worldview theology that talks about your work as worship, whether you're a car salesman or a nurse or a janitor, and yet you come to Sunday or you talk to the actual Christians, you know, when we gather together, and they have no idea of what that actually looks like, how the work that they're doing throughout the week is worship and how that relates to the gathered worship of God's people. For my dissertation, which this book isn't the dissertation, but I couldn't have written this book with Matt without the dissertation. I interviewed about 80 workers in three different churches, three different cities, and sat down with them for over an hour each and, uh, and just talked about their experiences of work and of gathered worship. And what I found very often is that a lot of these workers, these Christian workers, had this sense that they really should leave their, it's wrong to bring the joys, the sorrows, the praises of their work week into the sanctuary. That somehow that was polluting or undermining authentic and true worship of God. It was a distraction. Little things like, you know, we've had a, you know, a really hard week, but, you know, we just come here to settle that aside and just to praise God or receive from God as if receiving the word preached and read, responding with word, like that the two can't coexist with the joys, the sorrows that we bring with us from our week. But yeah, I wonder if you two actually have reflections on that, if we have a conversation on this. Yeah, I'd love to push it back towards Jeremy, since this is sort of your area, Jeremy. I want to get into practices in a second, but do you think of, you know, particular theologies that you see as kind of pushing apart what God has joined together? I I think it's, you know, that idea of worship is heaven on earth and lots of, yeah, lots of scholars and lots of different traditions have highlighted that. And I think maybe the emphasis is on a Here's where I need some theologians to help 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 this lit- liturgist songwriter slash musical theologian, like that that picture of heaven as otherworldly instead of new creation. Mm-hmm. And so you think of Hagia Sophia and Constantinople, Istanbul. I mean, it's an es- it's 
a beautiful escape, really. I mean, I have a, a little icon of a seraphim from from that place on my on my desk. And it's again very otherworldly or even Pentecostal charismatic traditions with singing in the spirit. It feels like you've gone to, to another dimension. Um, rather than seeing worship reflecting the age to come or the new creation, it's it's that view of escapism. And I wonder if that fuels like most of us don't think about what job or what vocation we'll have in the future. And so if worship is is based on heaven on earth, it's based on a really divided heaven and a very divided earth instead of those two coming together. But I, yeah, I'd love to hear kind of, I think some of it deals with our eschatology sure. that then fuel, fuels our liturgical theology, which then fuels our practice. Yeah. It's so interesting, you know, to think about what makes the reform tradition so attractive to me and what made it attract, cause I didn't grow up in the tradition. I grew up in uh, an independent Baptist church and there was a clear sort of hierarchy between vocations where at the very top were missionaries and pastors, and then a little bit further down, maybe youth pastors, and then everybody else who didn't get to serve God, you know, had to support, you know, pray and give to those who are actually doing the Lord's work. And one of the things that was really attractive to me about the Reformed tradition was precisely this idea of vocation. I mean, you know, Calvin locked the door of the church because, well, he didn't want there to be superstition about place, but also because he was sort of saying, it's out there where the action is, you know, out there in, in the, the theater of God's glory. And I think we've probably have taken that too far in a lot of ways um, in the Reformed tradition, and we need the 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 critiques of of other traditions. But it's interesting to think of sort of the return movement, isn't it, to the bringing back of whatever it is that we have been doing into the space where we worship together. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, Justin, you and I grew up in, I think, similar um, kind of you know, environments. And I'm, I don't know if you all had, but growing up in my church, uh, evangelical church, um, we had uh, Mission Sunday. And this is a, a Sunday once a year. We would, you know, the, the, the structure of the worship service would change, the liturgy, if you will. Um, and we'd have a big map of the world. And we'd have pins wherever missionaries that we are supporting, where they're serving around right. the world. And usually a missionary on furlough would come back and preach that day. And, and, you know, the great commission, Matthew 28 would obviously be the, probably the main text of the day. And, um, and that really shaped my values in terms of the love for Jesus, authority of scripture and a passion for the lost. And I, I still consider myself an evangelical, but what I began to question as I got older is that I began to think about what about my dad, who was the auto mechanic and, you know, auto shop teacher. Does he have a place in God's mission in the world? Or my friend's mom, who was an administrator at the public school and became superintendent, does her work matter to God? Does it have a role in God's mission? Or is it only for those who serve overseas or those who are in full-time paid you know, church ministry? And I think subtle things like that communicate that God's mission is really narrowly about this understanding of salvation, but it's simply disembodied. It's about my soul and finding its eternal rest in God, but it's, which is, it includes that, but it's, it doesn't include that wider perspective of God's mission and purposes in the world that includes social relationships and race relationships and, and the, and the ecology and how we treat the earth, right? That uh, salvation in terms of shalom is much more holistic. And so I think that's there. Um, I think the other thing, Jeremy, you're right on eschatology. I was reflecting on my commute into uh, the office today. 
you know, with COVID, we've lost quite a few people, well, many, <laughs> many uh, in our country, but in our own, my own family network and friends. And I've gone back to Marilyn Robinson's Gilead um, since becoming a new father. And there's this, there's a scene in there where John Ames, the main pastor, t- reflects as he's facing the end of his life. And he says, I look forward to seeing, you know, what it, it, what it is to be united or have um, to be present with Christ and to have be reunited with my my deceased wife and child. Yeah. But I can't imagine um, not missing this world. And so there is a sense of the eschaton or new creation of eschatology as separate from instead of it invading and enveloping. Right. So Yuger yeah. Molman will say that nothing that is good or human will be lost. Yeah. Or Herman Bavik will say grace restores and perfects nature. It doesn't you know, leave it aside. So if we take that theology of, of Bavik and Molman seriously, then um, then what the new creation with eschatology, the kingdom will look like, will take up all that is human. We will find ourselves fully human, not less human. And I just find it hard to believe that all of a sudden God's mission, that which began with our role as priests of creation, is somehow just jettisoned yeah. in the new creation. I love that. I mean, I think I, that's one of the things I really love about your your book is that it it has that vision of the new humanity, new creation, what the Church of Christ should be both both now, today, and in the in the future, and draws that very intentionally into worship, corporate worship, gathered worship, where we're trained, where the words we're saying, kind of our expressed theology, is is connected with. Yeah, our our vocation as individuals, but also as a as a corporate body, and so that's really beautiful picture. So you know, one of the things I appreciated about your book, as I've encountered the faith and work conversation, it always seems to me that it assumes some level of privilege where we expect our work to be incredibly meaningful and fulfilling. You know, in addition to providing for our basic needs, I once had an older gentleman say that to me. It's like he said, "People of your generation, you think your work has to be meaningful. You know, what's wrong with you?" <laughs> but for many people, I mean, in the course of human history, as well as right now, our work has just been toil. It's been functional. Um, and so, how have you tried to include those who work in menial jobs, people who are in the working class or the gig economy? who are scraping together multiple jobs in order to survive, sometimes with this kind of vision of Eden and new creation, we can obscure something of the pain um, of what work looks like in the present reality. What would you say to that? No, that's a great question. And it it is something that is, you know, very close to uh, my co-author, my heart. Um, So I think to answer this question, I have to just step really brief. I'll do it briefly back and just say the nature of this book we don't, we aren't overly explicit about is that we're trying to stay away from theologies of work that are from the top down. So let's get everything settled in theory and then we'll figure out, well, maybe we won't figure out, we'll give it over to pastors or others to figure out how this actually works. So we try to do both with, you know, like I said, it wasn't just the 80 interviews I did, but then Matt's work and my work in congregations in many different congregations, um, mostly I will say middle-class that doesn't mean there isn't unemployment or pain in those, um, but it's solidly middle class and solidly North American. Um, and because of that, then you're going to have limited ethnic diversity as well. Like once you go contextual, 
you go contextual, right? But our goal was to do this theology from above and from below and bring these two in conversation. And the reason why that matters is so many times when you are a pastor or you're teaching and you're talking about God's, you know, I just talked about Genesis 1 and 2 with you all. Now, if you're in a place of Egypt, enslavement, you're going to be ticked off. You're going to say, that's great that that's not my experience. I don't feel like I'm, I feel like everything's stripped away. And isn't that exactly what Pharaoh did? Mm. He had took priests who were designed to lift up their work as worship. And he objectified them as a means to this larger outcome, right? And so the reason why I say that is that the, the social location and experience of the workers, it shapes what they draw out of the theology the theological text or our book and out of scripture, right? Mm-hmm. What they bring to the text shapes that. And so we're mindful of that. And we tried very clearly, even though we're two white middle-class reformed theologians, um, we tried to allow the conversations, the pain, the suffering of the people we encountered in these congregations to shape the questions we bring to the text. And then what we tried to do is go beyond that and say, okay, we realize this is North American focused. So let's look to experiences of those throughout history and around the world. And this hasn't always been the case. And so we try to make use of what does this look like? What are the work experiences of those who are really objectified? Their name when they go to the factory is ripped away and they're given a number, almost like a prisoner. Mm. Right. And so looking at some of the, the what is what are the worship songs of someone who's objectified like that? What does that look like? And so we have songs and hymns from the Philippines and Korea and China where that is um, where workers are voicing that. And then also even some of the of the prayers and liturgies arising out of Catholic you know, peasants uh, in Central America. Right. Some of the masses that are painting Jesus as one who is who dignifies them because he is alongside of them at the booth selling their wares or whatever it is, right? Or or mm. sweeping and mopping that that because Jesus is the suffering servant alongside of it, it dignifies them. And our hope well is doing contextual theology, drawing in other voices is to say, we want more conversation partners in this. This is not the last word on this. Mm. But it was really important for us to begin from the ground so that the theology and the and the biblical exegesis that we're doing, it makes its way into the soil somewhere. Yeah. So there's a lot more to do, though, to make sure that it that the, so, the diverse soils of workers' experiences, their workplaces, make their way into this conversation. And we will be the first to say, yeah, we need a lot more, more work to be done. Yeah. I love that tension in the book. And even some of your case studies kind of unpack that. Like, your encouragement for us to be vocationally conversant um, as pastors, worship leaders, liturgists. I want to push into that a little bit. Like you're, you're a manager at the factory making those hard decisions based on shareholders and you're cutting jobs to, to those kind of on the front line, blue collar, and you're worshiping in the same church on the same Sunday, or maybe hit, hit a little closer to home. You're, you're the theology chair of a department and <laughs> redundancies. You're having to cut, cut friends. And I, again, we, we have those. And how, how do you bring those, which can be very politically um, oriented conversations or even 
so personally, relationally connected that it's even hard to pray then about work when it, when it becomes so painful and you have people in the same community that are mm -hmm. being drawn different ways. What would being vocationally conversant as a liturgist or worship architect be in those really tense situations? So here's where, yeah, I will draw on uh, biblical studies. The diversity or the plurality of biblical texts is the best thing you can do, uh, giving your, the people that you're, you're serving uh, a plurality of texts. And to give you an example, you know, the Psalms and the prophets, those two chapters in this book, I think are designed to be deeply subversive. Our experience of gathered worship needs to be one in which the, the light of the gospel sh is shined on our work. And so, particularly the prophets, for them, unholiness in the marketplace is always connected to unholiness or impurity in the sanctuary, and vice versa, right? So Amos is blaming the workers who just want to get over, rush through the service, so they can get back and oppress the workers. Hosea is blaming the worship leaders and the pastors, saying, you are being complicit. You are condoning these workplace, political, and economic oppressive practices by your own liturgies. And so what I would say is one is, is continuing to pull that prophetic imagination from the prophets. Um, the other is the Psalms. You know, we have some there like how to pray against your boss. Like, what do you do when you're angry? Right. And there are Psalms, you know, that uh, Psalm 109, you know, so if you're angry with your boss, you start praying through that and you get through the first part of the Psalm as I have and you're, re you're reading this and you're like, yeah, that's right. That's right. And then it gets to the point where it says, and may his wife be uh, a widow and his children orphans. And I'm like, oh, I'm mad, but I'm not that mad. Right. <laughs> so if worship, if the liturgy on Sunday morning is providing the imagination of the prophets or holiness in the workplace and holiness in, in, in the sanctuary are interrelated and the language that is put on our lips through the liturgists the prayers and response and, and songs are one of the Psalms where you're dealing with your anger, you're dealing with your jealousy, you're dealing with your sin, then that's going to be a refining process. So I think it can be more indirect and not just standing up and saying, all you lawyers or all you, yeah. you know, whatever you are, yeah. you're all in sin. I think it can be much more deeply subversive and function within the larger work of the pastoral ministry of the church is what I would say. Um, yeah, on, on that one. And one of the things I really loved about really early in the book, you sort of had these two pastors, you know, the one pastor who sits down with the worker and, and gives her some books to read, you know what I mean? Uh, some good theology, which is what, you know, we're, t we tend to do is like, Oh, well, let me see what books I have on my shelf to give you. And then the other pastor who sits down and just asks questions and wants to get to know what it's like to work. Uh, and I think the example was a nurse and then got a bunch of other nurses together. And on the basis of actually, knowing the real longings and laments and losses of, of a particular group of people, uh, you're able to actually craft a worship liturgy, order of worship that is actually responsive to it and quite specific um, with respect to various vocations. I just want to take a maybe a, a step back for just a second, though, because we are talking so much about liturgy and rituals. And there probably are some people listening to this uh, podcast that maybe they're not as comfortable with that kind of language. I think that one of the great contributions of your book is precisely the fact that you focus on practices and ritual and not just on good theology. Uh, but can you say more about that general framework of focusing on practices and ritual and liturgy rather than just 
the best ideas, you know, that we need to get in our brains. Yeah. So, I mean, growing up as you, you know, liturgy was something that Catholics did and right. maybe Anglicans. And so it's a very, it can be very off-putting. Some of the evangelical churches that I work with, like, we don't have liturgy. That's just, you know, that's not us. And and what we mean by that simply, it's just shorthand for what are the, the normal routines or practices that happen when we gather together for corporate worship? Do you have a sermon? How long is that sermon? Is it impromptu? Or is it, do you have random people stand up and speak a prophetic word kind of with, you know, seemingly no structure? Do you follow a liturgical calendar or does the worship leader just simply, um, you know, pick what they feel inspired through their devotions throughout the week? You know, and it changes from week to week. But those normal rhythms and practices, that's what we mean by liturgies. And to get to the, the theory behind that is, yeah, we draw a lot from, you know, Nick Wolterstorff and, and Jamie Smith in terms of it is what we do with our hands and with our bodies that trains us to love and to desire certain things, right? And so it's the habits, the, the, the things that we do throughout the day, our practices, our routines that shape who we are and what we love and what we desire. And so one of the things that, you know, coming out of the Reformed tradition, as all three of us do, we really love the worldview, right? This, this, this theology that tells us who God is, what's wrong in the world, and how God is making it right through Christ and the Holy Spirit. But what is often neglected is the, the what are practices that help us live into that reality, right? And this is where, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters can point us to help us recover, and even our Muslim neighbors and friends can help us recover the embodied nature of our of our texts, help us kind of renounce our Gnosticism, our anti-body and anti-creation tendencies through practices. It's practices that shape us. Um, I mean, I, I bring in two of my Muslim friends um, every year to a class I teach on uh, Christian engagement with other religions. And these two women, these two Muslim women, are the best, I think, learning experience that I offer in all my classes. And uh, they last year they came in, they talked about Ramadan and the ways in which Ramadan, the practices, right? They just walk through like, you know, you, you can't eat or drink, you know, from any, from sun uh, up to sundown. That means your whole entire life rhythm around family, around sleeping, around eating gets reoriented every year for the, for that month. And what they began to do is give us like a, almost a phenomenological account of what it's like to raise a family, getting them at 4am to make breakfast so they can have a meal as a family and then get some more sleep before they go to school. They did that, but what they did is it helped them. Uh, what they, they described is, is, is they described for us that this helps them live faithfully. This, these practices of Ramadan help them live faithfully according to the overarching narrative of Islam. Right, and that we are different from the world, step out of the world so that we can engage in ways that are faithful to our Muslim faith. And as I did that, and then after they left, I reflected with my students, and our core narrative is different, right, than, than the Muslim narrative. But uh, it was a helpful reminder. So for us, um, we are saved by grace through faith. And for Muslims, it would be more, and this isn't being polemical, but this I think is a true account. It's you are saved um, by faith through works. Allah has given them a particular path for them to walk. And so they, they have by faith, they walk that, but it's their works that actually save them. And so at the end, uh, when they stand before the judgment, it's they will have all their deeds with them that commend them to Allah. 
For us, it's different. Our core narrative is different, right? So we're saved by grace through faith. So our acts of obedience, our works are a response of gratitude. So our fundamental orienting axis revolves around a different story. However, for us with Lent, that's what Lent should be doing. Our Lenten practices should be helping us, right? Like this is the early, you know, the, the desert fathers. We have fasting and then filling practices. Fasting mm-hmm. with moving, whether it's food or practices, in order that we can engage in ways that are faithful to our core story. And so that is an example of basically how practices, what we do with our bodies, with our hands, how we eat, shape, how we live our lives, the orientation or the direction of our lives. And I think that there is basically when we come together in corporate worship, that is what should be happening. All week you've been grabbing, hoarding, living underneath this narrative of scarcity. And in in worship and corporate worship at the Lord's Supper, and we live in an economy of abundance. Mm. That we don't have to steal, grab, hoard. Everything that is given to us, including the gift of creation, is a gift that we then receive with gratitude, cultivate, lift it up with gratitude, and then God transforms the bread and the wine, the work of our hands, and gives it back to us as the body and blood of Christ. Mm. When we come into gathered worship, it's not just filling our minds, right? Thank God for the Reformed worldview stuff. But man, we have to, we have a lot more to learn in terms of living into this, in terms of practices that cultivate us to go back out and live differently throughout the rest of the week. Corey, I wonder if um, we obviously are in a exceptional time. And this book came out, I think, right near the beginning or in the middle of the COVID pandemic, where many of us had to shift to remote work. And you mentioned a little bit, I think, in in the book that maybe in the introduction that that that's going on. And so I'm wondering if there's something that I always say that whenever you're in in tragedy or whenever you're going through something exceptional, it just gets you faster to where you were already going, or it reveals things that were already true, but it makes it a lot more clear. And so I wonder if there's anything that COVID, the experience of of remote work or that all of us have sort of been under in in different ways, anything that you would want to, that it has sort of underlined from your research? And then is there anything that you would add to the argument uh, after going through the last year that we've been through? Yeah, yeah. So we were fortunate to be able to add something in the introduction, even though it was in December of 2019 that we sent in um, the final manuscript. And then uh, COVID hit, you know, in January and the reality of it, a lockdown for us in March. And then I think in April, we got the chance to get our hands back on it and we could add a little bit in the intro. Yeah, a lot has 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 happened, right? And we're still trying to get our heads around the world that we are living in now and what post-COVID will look like. I think both, so the book assumes gathered work and gathered worship, right. at, at least implicitly, right? And now like neither of those are a possibility for the last, you know, 14 months. And so it puts a lot, you know, one of the things I would say, and this comes from, I wrote a short article last spring and I, initial like weeks of trying to get my head around what was going on. I, I, what stood out to me was this notion of um, er, that every Christian is a priest and their workplace is their parish. And the models coming out of Latin America um, in terms of the base ecclesial communities in the 70s and 80s 
really provide, I think, um, some windows or some stimulation for our imagination of what it looks like to be a priesthood and to take place, like the places where we live or where we work, as seriously as our parish. And so those basic ecclesial communities in Latin America, these were these were largely Catholic or in some Pentecostal, but were uh, they were they they did not seek to replace the institutional church but to fill in gaps so that these workers would gather in neighborhoods or in factories and smaller geographic units, and they would not leave the place for which they had responsibility. They saw their parish as that factory or that neighborhood or whatever part of town they were in. And they would come and they would even not just read and pray in light of like, so all the burdens, social turmoil that was going on, um, whether it was unstable governments and, and fighting um, uh, economic oppression, they would bring those concerns and the realities of their workplace into their prayers and study together in small groups. Mm. And they would even take the Eucharist together without a priest often, right? So it got them in trouble. But if we are to live, truly be a, a people who are a priesthood, right? A royal priesthood, then what does church look like that empowers that priesthood throughout the week in the various parishes where God has placed us. So Leslie Newbigin, Hendrik Kramer, both saying that the priest, the ordinary Christian um, and their everyday work are at the frontier of God's mission in the world. It's there that they are priests in the parishes where God has placed them. And so how does the church function to empower them towards that end? And I think there's a lot there to still be explored. And I, my hope is that we don't go back to normal. Like, I definitely want to be with people. I miss, miss that, right? Mm-hmm. But that I hope that our vision of priesthood and parish will have gotten a bit more sharp and that we don't just get re-entrenched back into, well, we just going to, this is going to be an escape. It's going to be just a big celebration of kind of leaving the past behind that somehow we've been pushed out into these places where God has called us. And we see that as our, our parish where we're on mission with God. Mm. And the part that I, there's so much more, we hinted at the end of the book, but wish we could say more, that is, is the notion of, you know, what Willie Jennings talks about, a a theology of creation or a theology of place that is so needed in, you know, Western Christianity. I think there's a lot more to take that lens in terms of workplace. Mm. So if we're going to talk about a theology of place or theology of the land, let's start with work. Yeah. And then think through, well, shoot, places like, Oh, I think it's Patagonia that were building this big headquarters, you know, and they abandoned the, the building, right? When they were going to, you know, open and bring people in there. No, we're going to have remote work. What does place look like with this increased decentralization right. of, of workers? That, but we still have to take place seriously. Uh, we have to take those communities, these work communities. Maybe we need to think about our parish and including a digital dimension. So this is like right now, you know, or my students, if I'm on Zoom, they're still in my parish. I'm just not physically with them. And so I think that notion of place and parish or community, I would, that's something that we hopefully in our next book will go more into. Um, But that's certainly, yeah, that's a huge question mark right now in Mm. terms of what do we do with those realities? 
Yeah, I mean, I love I love those examples around kind of seeing, you know, a lot of the book is how can worship be more vocationally conversant? How can we draw in what happens outside of Sunday into, into Sunday? And I think you're starting to hit on, you know, open up, what would it look like flowing the other direction a little bit? Like, what would it look like for um, the workplace to also be a a place of worship again, maybe different than corporate worship and the structures and leadership that that different denominations have for that. But I'd I'd be curious, like, uh, to probe that a little more. What what would that look like? Maybe in a more North American context, what would it look like for worship to flow into yeah into factories and schools and right yeah, and, yeah. And some of those different areas? How could that kind of reverse? flow begin to begin to happen more. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, the big, big insight for me with my dissertation and doing all that qualitative research was those Christians who had the most robust spirituality, you know, like that basically how they did their work, their instincts was shaped somehow by the gospel and, and fellowship with the spirit. They were ones who had practices of actively bringing the joys, sorrows, praises, and laments from their work into the sanctuary. That was the key thing. Whereas all the liturgical worship study stuff was how does Sunday pour yeah. into it? And I, I don't disagree. I think that's absolutely right. I think Jamie Smith's work has done amazing work on that. So I affirm it at the same time. What I want to say is, you know, so Jamie Smith will say, if all of life is worship, worship, the sanctuary is where we learn how, what I would add is that if the sanctuary is to be formative, the work week must be brought in. Right. You must bring, don't come empty handed. And so what I would say, the, it's kind of intuitive, maybe a little bit. Um, but one of the things I would say is that, you know, when you're making your way to the sanctuary or before you get on Zoom, you're having breakfast for a Zoom worship, right? Rehearse what from my week do I need to praise God for from my work? What do I need to lament? What do I need to confess? What do I need to petition? And what do I have to offer up? Yeah. Right. Um, I have wrote a, I printed out an email from, uh, uh, from Richard Mao because he said something really nice about our book. And I'm like, you know what? That's a praise. That's an offering that I can offer up to God is like, thank you. Like that, that meant a lot. And that someone else celebrating the work of our hands. And so what do you have to bring into this space? We used to do it when we drove to church. Now we try to two-year-old it's a little more difficult um <laughs> before we log on to zoom worship but those things become present and one example is a a, a speech therapist who works with stroke victims in hot and hospitals and she said that the most formative thing for her that gives her hope and strength to do her work throughout the week was the benediction hmm. and she said because i always have my my patients in mind and whenever their face comes to mind i just quietly say a prayer for their healing, but also for wisdom on what kind of treatment, course of treatment I should, you know, pursue with them. And then I move on. But she said, when I come to the benediction, I picture the faces of all these patients in front of me. And I hear God say to me, go out and serve them on my behalf. Hmm. So what I would say, Jeremy, is if you want them to you want Sunday to pour into the rest of the week, what can you do as a worship leader to pause before the benediction? to invite, you know, that, um, to think about the anxieties for this coming week or, you know, yeah. and you don't have to be overly didactic about it. The spirit of God will make connections within their hearts and minds is what I found. Cause no one taught this woman how to do that. 
she taught me how to inhabit worship more faithfully. You know, um, I'm leaving my anxieties and my anger about, you know, am I going to get this published? I'm waiting to hear back on that article. I'm carrying that with me in my body and I'm not thinking about it. I'm not praying about it at all in worship, but it's fully present. And here I'm interviewing this woman, speech therapist, you know, she probably couldn't tell you all the worldview answers, you know, like you two could, and I could, but man, she lives it way more, you know, integrally than I do. And I was deeply moved. So that's, I mean, it's a simple thing, whether it's in Zoom or in person that we somehow allow and invite and encourage people to bring that, their joys, sorrows, laments into, into the sanctuary or into the corporate worship and then be mindful and said, bless and send them back out into those places. Mm. And it's such a rich conversation and we could probably keep on talking uh, for a long time, but I think we'll probably put a pin in it at this point. You've been incredibly generous with us uh, with your time. And the book is Work and Worship by Matt Kamick and Corey Wilson. Corey is our guest. And uh, Corey, thanks so much for uh, being our guest today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a joy. It's so much fun talking to you too. Jeremy, thanks so much for co-hosting with me today. Thanks for the invitation, Justin. It was awesome. Again, a rich conversation with Jeremy and Corey. You can learn more about the book Work and Worship by reading the review written by Jeremy on the NL Things site, link in the description. But the best thing to do really is to get the book, especially if you are a worship planner or faith leader. This is the fifth episode of the podcast. And if you have any suggestions for how we could be better or which guests we should interview, we'd love to hear them over at the In All Things site or on social media. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Vischer, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.